Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. It is a pleasure to introduce International Master Eric Rosen to the February edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Normally, we speak to the cover story author, but this month we decided to try something a little bit different and talk to someone who was deeply involved in our overall U.S. chess coverage of the cover story event. In this instance, the world championship match between Magnus Carlsen and our very own Fabiano Caruana. Originally from Skokie, Illinois, Eric graduated from Webster University in 2017 with a B.A. in Interactive Digital Media. From 2015 to 2017, Eric competed for Webster University's chess team. He learned the rules of chess from his older brother at the age of seven and competed in his first tournament by the age of eight. At age nine, he had won the Illinois' third grade state championship. In 2009, he won the U.S. Junior Open and in 2011, the National High School Championship. This latter event with a perfect 7.0 score. At the time, Chess Life Online reported, Running the New York City gauntlet on the final day en route to a perfect score has to rank as one of the outstanding individual achievements in this tournament's history. Since graduating, Eric has spent his time teaching chess, traveling the world, and pursuing a number of creative freelance projects. In fact, he's joining us now from Thailand. Welcome to the show, Eric Rosen. Yeah, thanks so much, Dan. Uh, Thanks so much also for the thorough introduction. It brought back some really nice memories. And I have to say, I I love the podcast. I was just binging uh, a bunch of the the previous episodes, and it feels pretty surreal right now to be interviewed by you. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, too. And that's the first time anybody's told me they've binge listened to us. So so that's great to hear as well. Uh, Look out, Amazon. So what are you doing in Thailand? Um, So I'm actually spending a few weeks just basically working remotely. Um, It kind of fell into place by accident. Because uh, I was traveling. Well, first of all, I traveled to London for the World Championship match in November, and then I played in back-to-back tournaments in Australia in December. And uh, around like December time, my family finalized a trip to Portugal and to Africa in February, so next month. And uh, I was kind of left with this um, these few weeks in January where I had the option of going back home, but I figured why not spend some time in Southeast Asia. And a lot of the work that I do is remote, where I can teach online, do a lot of uh, like YouTube content and streaming. So I, um, I essentially looked up some of the best places to live in Southeast Asia. And the city I'm currently in, uh, Chiang Mai, is like one of the top cities in the world to, to live in. So it's been a very good exp- experience so far. Is there any kind of chess scene there locally? Um, I was doing some research and I found like a chess meetup group, but it was a year or two outdated. So unfortunately, um, I really haven't found much. Um, but I'm planning to go to Bangkok uh, about next week. 
And someone actually reached out to me uh, who watches my content online and uh, said he lives in Bangkok. He's a chess player. Um, so hopefully there's more opportunities to, to connect with chess players there. Let's go right to the beginning of your chess career. The uh, you know you, We say you, you learned at the age of seven, and by nine, you were already a state champion in your age, age group. When, when did you recognize that you might be better than the average player? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I got into the game really quickly. I had a pretty long attention span for the average seven-year-old. And even before I learned the rules, I was just really into puzzles and I could spend hours doing like jigsaw puzzles. So when I learned chess, it was a great fit for me. And my parents uh, found some just local chess class with our, uh, our park district. And when I attended the class, I was beating most of the, the kids there. And uh, the instructor there introduced me to, to tournaments. And once I got involved with tournaments, it was, um, I mean, it was just such a great experience. And I, I kept competing. And I'll also mention that uh, my first uh, serious coach was Tamara Golove, originally from Belarus. And she was a childhood coach of Boris Gelfand and uh, Grandmaster Yuri Shulman, also former U.S. champion. So she gave me a great foundation for the game. And I think uh, I have to owe a lot to her for teaching me uh, very effectively from the early days. I mentioned your older brother uh, started you on this road. Does he still play chess? Uh, he does not. He has actually never competed in a, a tournament. He just kind of played casually, I think, back uh, back when he was much younger. And he knew the rules, and that's, uh, that's how he ended up teaching me. Um, but he's actually spending uh, the next year in Senegal, um, working for the Peace Corps. So this is why my family is uh, taking the trip to visit him next month. If he's like most older brothers, though, he probably still takes credit for your incredible chess success throughout life. Yeah, I, I, we haven't <laughs> spoken too much, but uh, I would assume that he, he takes credit for the majority of my accomplishments. <laughs> and you know, you, you've mentioned your family a, a, a couple of times now. Uh, you know, your Your parents have had many other ways that they've stayed in contact with the chess world. Your, your mother, Andrea Rosen, uh, wrote uh, in Chess Life in the August 2011 issue after you won the National High School. She wrote an article called An Encouraging Purr, which was about raising a champion and was a bit of a uh, kickback against, or pushback rather, against uh, the tiger mom theory that was in vogue then. I wouldn't forgive myself if I don't ask you a question related to that article. Uh, sure. We led that article off with a picture, a full-page photo of you hitting a wicked backhand. <laughs> so my question is, do you still play tennis? I still do, not as much as I would like to. Um, but every time I play these days, it seems like it's always in St. Louis during some of the uh, more popular uh, events. And I think the last time, or last couple of times I played tennis, I was playing with Ray Robson, Nakamura. There was another time I was playing with uh, MVL and Rustam Kajinjamov. Um, so I've, I've gotten a chance to play with some kind of big chess names uh, recently. But I mean, back when I was in high school, I, I played four years for our varsity team and I was playing every day, uh, at least in the springtime. Um, so it's, it's a bit more difficult to play these days with so much traveling. But um, I mean, when the weather's good and when I'm in St. Louis, I try and play at least uh, at least a few times when I get the chance. I hope my listeners would indulge me as I go down this road. As, I, as when I'm not a playing or involved in chess, I'm also a tennis player. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, on the local scene. You you were number two on your uh, varsity high school team. I, I read in that article at the time. Uh, did you have a USTA rating as well? I believe I did, but I wasn't that active, at least in USTA tournaments. I know I played a few. Um, I will say my high school tennis team wasn't the strongest compared to most other schools. Um, but I mean, I, I enjoyed competing and I, I did like decently for, uh, at least for the high school level, I played singles all four years. So brings back some good memories. Yeah, so you ridiculously successful in two separate fields. Well, you know, <laughs> you save save some room for the rest of us to improve. <laughs> well, I will say it's good to have a balance between chess and other activities. And I think that's it actually helped me with my chess game in high school because when I was getting burnt out from chess, I had just another activity to pursue and enjoy. And I think it's important for any like scholastic player or um, like college player or high school player. Um, if they're very active in chess, it's, it's helpful to have some balance. Um, if it's even if it's another sport or activity, just to, um, just to have something to uh, level things out with. Well, and it's been really noticeable to me over the years how often chess players use tennis as that activity to balance themselves out. Um, you know, from Karpov and Fisher on up uh, through the players you just mentioned in St. Louis, it seems like a very popular pursuit. Yeah, I've noticed uh, I've noticed that with tennis, but also ping pong. Um, it seems like those are the two most popular sports among chess players. And when I was actually at Webster University, our uh, our collegiate team got two ping pong tables, and then it got to a point where the the players on the team were playing more ping pong than chess, actually. So let's get right into what was what's the main reason for you being on the show, and that's the 2018 World Championship. Uh, you were there as uh, a photographer, and you did a Twitter takeover for Chess Life Online. Uh, your photos are grace the cover of our February mm-hmm. issue and illustrate the article. Um, what What is your background as a photographer, uh, and how did that help you as a pro at this event where there were so many world photographers covering it at the same time? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say it's been on my bucket list for a while to either have a photo on the cover of Chess Life or be on the cover of Chess Life myself. So it's uh, actually an honor to hear that I have at least uh, some content on the cover. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, But yeah, I've been involved with photography since my early days of high school. I first got interested in taking a, a photo 101 class my, my freshman year of high school. And shortly after taking that class, I got kind of a nice quality uh, DSLR camera and just enjoyed the kind of the art of, of capturing the moment and capturing photos. And in recent years, it's combined very well with chess. Um, in high school, I did a lot of like sports photography. Um, and I actually had a side job doing a lot of photos for my high school yearbook. Um, but yeah, in recent times, the uh, the chess photography uh, industry isn't uh, isn't so big. It's it's kind of two uh, two niches combined. And the fact that I have uh, good enough equipment and kind of the chess. Uh, Kind of the chess network and chess expertise, it's led to a number of really cool and uh, exciting opportunities. Um, I'm trying to remember the fir- the first event that I actually like photographed as- officially uh, for uh, for any sort of chess outlet, but I'm I'm remembering one tournament at the World Open 
I think it was a 2000, I want to say 2010 World Open, where there is a 10-way tie for first. And I somehow had photos of all the players who tied for first, and all of those photos made Chess Life magazine. So I think from that moment, I was more motivated to capture like top-level events. And uh, yeah, recently, the photographing the World Championship was very, uh, very intense, but uh, enjoyable experience um, being surrounded by just so many like major news outlets and um, and like top notch photographers got to meet David Yada for the first time, which was really cool. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, I think it offered a lot of interesting shots. And I, I did my best every day to get different perspectives of the of the event. Talk a little bit about uh, what it is like uh, for the the media at the the world championship venue is do they set up a uh, is there a media room do they give any special access to the assembled media uh, any impressions you have that would give some uh, can I give the full picture to our listeners sure well there was a media room at the event um, I will say it was a little bit small. Uh, at least relative to the number of media people there. Um, and I, I learned shortly after like the first couple of days of attending that to get a spot in the media room, I had to show up uh, well before the, the game actually started, usually at least two hours before um, to reserve a table with my laptop. Um, but yeah, the media room held, I, I know the number is, is somewhere online. I think it held like maybe 50 to 60 journalists. Um, and then for every game that was played in the match, uh, you could get photo access to to be in the playing room for the first five minutes of uh, of the games. And being a photographer, it was uh, it, it was pretty intense because you were just surrounded um, by other photographers in the playing hall. There really wasn't much space. And for every round, you were basically crammed in like sardines um, with not much room to get different angles. Um, and there was actually a very good photo by David Yada. Uh, he took a, a picture of Mike Klein um, kind of being seemingly choked by like the ropes, uh, like holding his camera, being surrounded by by other photographers. And I feel like that photo is kind of demonstrative of uh, what it was like to be a photographer. Um, but after the first few days, I kind of learned kind of the, the landscape of the event and um, it didn't have too much of, a, of an impact in terms of being able to get the, the best shots. And the other r- really key uh, thing you did for us uh, is the Twitter takeover. Uh, I imagine that we have a number of listeners who may not be familiar exactly what that means. Why, why don't you explain that to us? Sure. Well, um, as it sounds, it was just a matter of have taking over the U.S. Chess Twitter account for basically the duration of the event. I've done a few of these before for um, for just individual rounds at, at events like U.S. Championships or Singfield Cup. Um, but this was more of an extended takeover where I was managing basically all of uh, not only Twitter, uh, social media, but also Instagram um, for pretty much every every game of the uh, of the match. And it involved essentially combining uh, different forms of content. So a lot of it was posting pictures with interesting captions and giving updates on the positions and doing polls and getting kind of uh, fan feedback and input from um, in, in terms of what fans would be predicting. Um, so it was 
it's kind of an interesting job because it, it keeps you on your feet and always uh, challenges me to figure out how to uh, keep interest, especially when there's one game going for like five, six, seven hours, um, at least trying to continually come up with creative content and tweets and um, and interesting photos to at least provide the story for the event. So I found it very enjoyable. And I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Jen Shahadi on the previous uh, podcast was saying that there is a, a huge spike in, in Twitter followers. And I know the, the count broke 20,000, um, I think partly in thanks to the event. So it was uh, very good to see getting a lot of attention from viewers around the world. Yes, we definitely had many of them were uh, many of your tweets had some very high like counts. Were were there any particular tweets that you remember that were particular favorites of yours? Uh, that's a good question. You're making me think now because uh, <laughs> the event was what just over two months ago. Um, there were a number of standout photos which I kind of repurposed as uh, as tweets. Um, there were a few. I think some of the most popular tweets were expressions from that Magnus Carlsen, either like over the board or in the press conference where he's just making the most ridiculous faces. And I think the photo that I remember the most, at least in, in terms of getting the most like retweets and likes, was the was his reaction to one of the comments in the press conference when he was told that Fabiano had missed like some absurd maiden in 30 or maiden 40. And Magnus's expression is um, is just hilarious. Like he has this huge frown, and his the wrinkles in his forehead are just so uh, um, I don't even know the word, but uh, very expressive. And it's the type of thing you just kind of have to see. About a year ago, you you wrote a very popular article for Chess Life Online uh, about being a chess vagabond. Do you consider your uh, trip to London to to fall into that category, or is it is that almost too mainstream in covering a world championship not to fall under the vagabond category? Um, well, I think it's a combination of a lot of my travels, which kind of make me fit under this kind of vagabond nomad category. Um, at least in recent times, I've kind of considered myself a, a digital nomad where I'm I'm traveling so much. And a lot of my work is online where I, I have the flexibility to travel and not be tied down to one location. Um, but yeah, within the last what three three months since uh, kind of mid November, I went to London. I took a short stop in Malaysia. Went to Australia. Um, before Thailand, I was uh, just in Indonesia for uh, a couple of weeks, and a lot of it um, a lot of it is chess related. And for the places that are not chess related, I'm still doing a lot of uh, chess related work between teaching and uh, and streaming. I'm curious about the just the general atmosphere uh, among the the spectators and maybe even the press that was assembled assembled in London. Was there any general feeling that they were pulling for one player over the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I will say that um, I mean it was a very diverse group of fans. Like there were a lot of locals from London, but then a lot of people were traveling from around the world. Like a lot of people I met from the U.S. Uh, a lot of people from from Norway. I mean, the, the, a lot of the notable press was uh, the Norwegian TV stations, which were covering the event in a very, uh, very professional manner. Um, but in terms of just the overall feel in terms in terms of like who who had the bigger fan base, 
uh, it seemed like Magnus wa- had like just more supporters just because the, the of the chess culture in Norway. Um, but sometimes at least being in um, like kind of enthralled in the, the digital landscape and, and handling the U.S. chess social media, sometimes you're in this bubble where if uh, especially tweeting for U.S. chess, you're just seeing a, a huge fan base for Fabiano, which was uh, which was very nice to see because I was, of course, rooting for him, even though it uh, didn't quite out didn't quite pan out as we uh, as we hoped. Yeah, it was about as close as, as it could have gotten. And and I'm going to use that as a, a opportunity to springboard into our best question contest, which is sponsored monthly by U.S. Chess Federation Sales, which you can find at uscfsales.com. If your question is selected as the best question, you will win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com. We have a number of good questions this month. So thank you very much, listeners, for all your submissions. Some of them are specific to the World Championship and some are more general. So I'm going to kind of jump around and save the best question winner for last, Eric. Um, The first question does uh, uh, come uh, is about the World Championship. And I I think most of our listeners are class level players. And so this is going to be of interest to hear what you say. what It comes from Jason Delpire. He asks, what can the average tournament player take away from this most recent world championship match? Uh, that's a good question. And I feel like there's, there's so many different ways to answer this. Um, just because there were, j- just in terms of watching the match, there, there are so many different ways to uh, just observe the games. Um, the one thing I, I would love to talk about is, is just... The, the myriad of um, of kind of platforms which were doing their own uh, live streams and commentaries for the match, and especially for the average kind of couch potato couch potato viewers that were watching online and who weren't physically there, uh, there are so many different um, kind of commentators you could follow, um, and. I know I did a tweet about this uh, at some point during during the event, but if you would log on to, to twitch.tv and look at like how many people were streaming chess, um, there, there's just uh, I think fans were spoiled with so much to choose from um, in terms of chess.com having their, their own stream, chess network, uh, Ben Feingold, chess24, the chess bras. And I could go on and on just mentioning like different ways to watch the event. Um, so I think that was just hugely valuable for fans to kind of stay involved and just find kind of the right, uh, the, the right commentators to at least be entertained from or, uh, or learn from. Um, so in terms of takeaways from the match, uh, like kind of the overall results, um, I, I would say, and this is a takeaway not only for the average viewers, but also uh, like the organizers and the players as well, is I think the format needs to be changed in some way, um, just because with so many, with all draws in, in the classical portion, there, there should be some change to make the, make the event more, more interesting and, and, ha- and show some more bloodshed, um, especially for maybe the, the spectators who aren't involved as much with chess, you you want to see more blood, and, and when it's draw after draw after draw, it's not the most uh, marketable event for uh, for non-chess players. 
questions. I'm going to cut you off on your answer there because that actually gets into what the selected best question asks. So we're going to let you talk more about that later on. Now, another question uh, about the World Championship comes from Rob Dean of the Springfield Green County Park Board Chess Club, which is a 501c3 educational organization. He says, uh, Eric, I love the logo you did for the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. My question is, if you were FIDE, what time controls would you use for the next world championship? Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and I've I will say I've I haven't put too much thought into like exact format changes or ideas, um, but I have read a lot online, and I think the one time control change, rather than just maybe focusing more on on having a blitz and rapid portion, is to have some slower or some faster classical games. Because um, the only classical time control they were using is this very kind of um, just tiring control where you you continually get extra time for different uh, different stages of, in the match. I think the players would get extra time on move 40 and then extra time on move 60. Uh, I think it would be very interesting to have some portion of the match just be the, the traditional 90 plus 30 with no um, no additional time on... Uh, on move 40 or whatever uh, later move. Um, and this this is a time control that I'm, I've probably played the most myself in a lot of like norm events and just big open tournaments. And it would be interesting to see how the players would adapt to this time control as they uh, they don't get this extra time and they, they basically have to manage their time from uh, from the very beginning of the game. Uh, Mr. Dean adds if, that if, if they had been the winner of the $50 gift certificate, if they'd be able to trade it in for an Eric Rosen design logo. So he really likes the the one you designed for the chess club uh, and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. And by the way, I, I, I did not realize you designed that. I, I, I agree. It's a very clever design. Yeah, well, I appreciate uh, the words from him. Um, yeah, I've I've dabbled a little bit in like logo design and graphic design. Um, I I did a lot more like that during my university days. But if he wants a logo designed, I'll say I, I just do it kind of casually and not so much professionally. But uh, but yeah, feel free to reach out. So as a uh, oh, if they want to reach out, how can they reach you? Uh, the best way is just to go to my website, imrosen.com. And there's a contact page. You just uh, backslash contact. And I will say I've been pretty overwhelmed recently with just a number of messages I've been getting um, because I've been doing more kind of free online content between live streaming and YouTube. I get dozens of messages every day, but um, email is still the the one I prioritize the most. So if you send me an email, I, I will try to eventually get back to you. Well, our next question is a more general chess question, and it comes from former U.S. women's champion Alexi Root, who is a, I very appreciate her frequent contributions to this contest. Uh, she asks another good question. You have met many of the top chess players in the world. Which one would you want to go to dinner with, and what would you talk about at that dinner? Oh, man, that's uh, that's a tough one. I mean, when, like not even hearing the, the second part of the question, and like just, I, I've met so many players in the world, which one would I choose to do whatever with? Um, I mean, the, the first and probably most friendliest player that I know that comes to mind is Yasser Sarawan. Um, and I've th- this is someone who I've, I'm pretty friendly with just personally. I see him a lot in, uh, in St. Louis when he's doing commentary for these top events. And what was the, the last part? Like, what, what would we talk about? 
Yes, exactly. Oh, that's a tough question because usually when you have a conversation with Yasser, usually it's him doing most of the talking and he's just <laughs> filled with just like, uh, I don't want to um, exaggerate, but he has hours and hours of stories to tell. Uh, so I feel like it would just be him talking, just telling stories about just so many uh, chess experiences from, from his lifetime. And um, I don't think you have already, um, especially if you haven't, you should really try and have him on the podcast because he's a great person to uh, to hear from. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The Yasser is, is one of the really good guys in the chess world. The, the first time I ever approached him in person, uh, he had no idea who I was, but he, when I approached him, he had a big smile on his face, was very welcoming. Um, so he's a very genuine individual. This next question comes from, and I, I'm going to apologize in advance for probably butchering your name, but it looks like it's uh, Luke Bisson. Uh, and he asks, if you could change anything about chess from the game's rules to the way people think about chess, what would it be? Mm, that is difficult because there's so many different ways or so many different things I could think of. Um, and immediately I'm starting to think of variants and, uh, just being reminded of like the number of variants that you can play online. Um, if you go to like Lee chess or, or chess.com, you're, you're just spoiled with so many different forms of chess that you can play between like this, um, this four player chess and this horde chess where one player has uh, like 30 pawns and another player just has their normal setup. Um, yeah, it's it's tough to actually come up with something original. I will say, uh, a few weeks ago when I was in Australia, I played a variant of chess that I've never played before. And I only played one game, but it was really interesting. And it's the type of game I would really like to try and play again. And I'd be very interested to see if it's available like online to purchase. But essentially, it's just a normal chess set where the pieces are split in half. And it's normal chess rules with one kind of new added rule that for any given move, if you wanted to, you could play a move which merges two different pieces on the same square. And the pieces are split in half to make it so like the pieces connect. And then with that move, if like let's say you merge a knight and a bishop, then all of a sudden you have a piece which moves like a knight and a bishop. So it was a really interesting variant. I forget what it was called. Maybe something like like split chess. Um, but that would be really interesting to play over the board because it was fun to kind of merge the pieces together. And it would be interesting to see if there'd be any interest in like competitive tournaments uh, outside of the traditional chess tournaments. Well, that really is, uh, I've not heard of that one before, and that's very different than anything. Uh, mo most variants seem to be variants on, on themselves, so that, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to look that one up. Uh, one, uh, one variant that's incredibly popular at events that you competed in is, is Bug House. We have our National Bug House Championships at all the um, Spring Scholastic Championships. Were, were you a Bug House competitor when you were playing in the Scholastic events? I was, yeah. I played nearly every year that I was eligible to play. Um, the, the one issue, though, is they don't really have Bug House tournaments for adults. It's only these Scholastic events, uh, which makes me a little bit sad. But I did win the, the high school National Bug House Championship once, uh, actually when I was uh, a senior in high school. So it's the last time I, I could play in it. But um, I still have the, the trophy sitting on my bedroom dresser. 
Who was your partner that day? Uh, it was Matthew Dahl from Minnesota, who I don't think he's too active anymore. But um, at the time, I mean, I think he was 2,300 and I was over 2,400. So we were one of the strongest teams. Speaking of adults playing Bughouse, I seem to remember seeing some photos from the Sinkfeld Company in St. Louis uh, showing some of these top players uh, playing Bughouse and, in fact, some of them being introduced to it for the first time. I, I'm thinking Aronian was introduced to it for the first time there. Oh, yeah. That's actually hard to imagine Aronian being introduced for, to it for the first time because he's probably one of the strongest players within these uh, top players who play Bughouse in St. Louis. Then I'm probably th- thinking of somebody else then, but uh, I think it was at the Sinkfield Cup that one of them had, had not heard of it before. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And uh, pretty much every time I'm in St. Louis for one of these top events, whether it be Sinkfield Cup or U.S. Championships or the Blitz and Rapid event, uh, there's usually a group of the top GMs uh, playing Bughouse pretty late into the night, even if there is like a, a game the following day. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure of being part of, uh, of some of these games. Uh, probably the best memory I have is being partners with Yasser and taking down a team of Aronian and MVL. And it was just one game, and we, we lost, I think, a bunch of other games. But uh, winning one game against them was pretty nice. This takes us to our best question, and it's from Don Kruger. And Mr. Kruger, thank you for your submission, and you should have your $50 gift certificate waiting for you in your inbox by the time you hear this. And you've already answered this partly, Eric, uh, with two of the other questions. Mm-hmm. But I really like the way... Uh, Mr. Kruger has has framed this. He says, on your stream, you have called Blitz not real chess, but Blitz is a world championship tiebreaker. What are your thoughts on awarding the title of world chess champion for demonstrating superiority at something other than real chess? Yeah, first of all, that actually surprised me. Um, I I can't remember saying that. It may have been referring to like a a moment in a stream where I was in some like uh, desperate time scramble where maybe I had like a few seconds left and I was just trying to like dirty flag my opponent. And rather than playing sensible moves, I'm just trying to spite check my opponent so he runs out of time. Um, I will say at least in some world championship blitz format, I, I think the players would have increments. So there wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't be any situations uh, where you're just trying to flag your opponent. Um, but I will say that, yeah, it's a bit unfortunate that the, the classical world championship could be decided in a, in a blitz game and even worse be decided in an Armageddon game where the players can work so hard, like preparing for classical chess and then have to, uh, for it to come down to a, a blitz game. It's um, not what, not exactly what the players want to see, even if it would be entertaining for the fans. Um, so what was the last part of the question? He wanted suggestions for ways to remedy it. Uh, he actually did not did not ask that. Uh, but I think you covered that with one of the other uh, questions from earlier as, as, as far as remedies. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'll say, uh, if, if viewers want more insight into this, is to check out Greg Shahadi's blog, because I know he has like a whole blog post of like different format suggestions, and he's put a lot more thought into it than I have. So. Do you think that Carlson played this system to perfection, uh, and or, or do you think that he was uh, that just as it got to the end of the the match, that's when it 
he started thinking, well, I, I, I think I'm a better uh, Rapids player than Caruana, so I'll just take my chances there. Um, I mean, it was definitely evident in, with the final round game where he took a draw in what seemed to be an almost winning position that he had kind of a strategy in mind. Um, maybe it's easy to say things in hindsight that he played it to perfection. Like it worked out incredibly well for him, given that he okay took the draw, probably conserved some energy, and then just um, just crushed uh, Fabiano in the the rapid games. Um, so yeah, when, like whenever the format is determined, you'll you'll see players try and um, try and do whatever gives them the best chances to uh, to win a match like that. So what's in the near future for you as a chess player and chess journalist? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I mean, you brought up chess player and chess journalist, but these days I'm, I'm focusing a lot on teaching and education. Um, I will say a question I get all the time is uh, if I'm pursuing the Grandmaster title, given that uh, I got my IM title uh, a few years ago now. Um, and I'm actually trying to kind of stray away from high-level tournament play, uh, even even though it would be nice to get the GM title next to my name. Um, spending so much energy in these high-level events is not what I want to uh, at least put the most devotion towards. Um, so these days, I'm, uh, I'm doing a lot with just online education between private coaching. Um, I've been doing a lot more with producing uh, free content for YouTube lately. And the, the subscriber numbers have really been taking off. And I'm realizing that it, it could very well turn into a career uh, if the audience keeps growing. And I have some kind of project and business ideas uh, lined up for the coming months. I'm going to be focusing on doing some uh, some online courses, and I'm currently on a team with uh, with some grandmaster uh, educators, and we're we're working on putting out uh, kind of a new platform for online lessons. So probably within the next month, I'll have more information on that. So, uh, if people want to find you on YouTube, do you have a channel, or do they just need to search for Eric Rosen? Yeah, if you just type in Eric Rosen Chess into YouTube, it should take you to my channel. Um, I think the official link is just YouTube.com/RosenChess, and if you if you go to my website too, IamRosen.com, you can find links to all of my social media. And if you're, uh, I, I know you say you're not uh, focused on high-level competition, but I, I should point out to you that the U.S. Open this year is being held at the Rosen Center, and that sounds, in Orlando, Florida, that sounds like it's the, the planet's aligning in your favor. Well, I know it, it's been held at that venue before, and I don't think I've ever actually been to the Rosen Center, so if I'm, if I'm able to make it, uh, that would be some kind of extra incentive to go. Absolutely. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Eric. Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, I think you're going to uh, really enjoy going through uh, the article in the February issue and seeing all of Eric's wonderful photos to, that that serve Grandmaster Ian Rogers' story about the event. Um, so good luck with everything that you've outlined for us, Eric. Yeah, thanks so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
it's time to introduce our senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, to our monthly segment, Checking In with Jen, where we talk about everything happening in, on our digital platforms at US Chess. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Dan. And to start off with, we have something really exciting. We've been teasing uh, something new coming from you for quite some time, and it's finally here. It is your brand new podcast, Ladies Night. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about that. That debuted about a week ago with our first guest, Alexandra Botez, and some really awesome music by the artist Huga. So it, it was it was just really a pleasure to see it out there and see that there's a positive response. So I really love this uh, music by Huga. Um, it, uh, am I the only one who thinks it sounds a little bit like a James Bond theme? I, I think I have heard that before and I love it too. And even my, my husband is kind of like singing the, the song in the shower, talking about the Carol Khan. So yeah, it's yes. very infectious. It, it absolutely is. And... This podcast is also tied to something new happening with you as well. You, we've always introduced you as our senior digital editor, which you'll continue to be, but you're going to be taking on a new title coming up very shortly, Women's Program Director. What will be entailed with that? Well, with the Women's Program Director role, in addition to kind of continuing to promote women's content and promotion, I'm going to be doing more um, work with girls and women, kind of encouraging them to keep playing, giving you know special lectures and events and also really trying to get more people to understand um, our mission to bring everybody into the game. And that includes trying to equalize the numbers with women and men. So I want to get that message out there, not only to people who might become members, but people who might be able to uh, give us support to reaching our goals. Because I think it's really something that more and more people are understanding is important. We got to get more girls and women into STEM fields and chess. And I think we're going to get a lot of support for this, and I'm happy to be, um, you know, pushing that along. And we have some special websites and uh, Twitter handles as well for the women's initiatives, right? Yes, we do have U.S. Chess Women on Instagram and Twitter, as well as uschesswomen.org, which is just a kind of shortcut to get to our women's initiative page. So welcome to our growing family of podcasts. Um, so this cover stories with Chess Life, it drops on the first Tuesday of every month, one move at a time, drops on the second Tuesday. And Ladies Night will be on the third Tuesday of every month. So plenty of listening, whether you're walking your dogs or or just studying your chess listeners. So please download. So let's look at some other things on our calendar this, this month. Um, the, the teams are always a big event. In fact, the U.S. Amateur Team East is usually one of our best attended U.S. chess events every year. What, what do we have happening there? Well, yes, yeah, so we've got four U.S. Amateur Team events coming. Up And it's always really fun to hear from all the different players. So we're going to have coverage of all the different events on CLO. I encourage people, if they have their own games or thoughts or incidents from any of these events, either tweet us using the hashtag USATChess or um, even email and let us know maybe your game or your story will be featured. Do we have any special hashtags for, for this event? Yes, US, USAT Chess is what I'd use. So we'll try to, that, that way, all whether you're tweeting about the West or the East, you'll be featured on uh, the, uh, the website, I mean the Twitter handle and the Twitter feed. And I'll be able to pick it up at US Chess and retweet you. So as long as it's, as long as it's, appropriate and at least somewhat interesting, right? Uh, right. So yeah, we, but seriously, if you, if you have a good story or a good photo, we'll retweet you at our, our Twitter handle, which has over 20,000 followers now. So, you know, it's really a good way 
for those local organizers or local players who are trying to build the following um, to, you know, amplify their message. And there's another brand new event on the national calendar, uh, thanks to our good friends at St. Louis Chess Club. Um, and it, it it's going to involve some of the top players, women players in the world. Uh, what do we have going on in St. Louis in February? Well, that's right. Well, the Karen's Cup is kicking off in February. And I'll be there. I'm part of the organizing team as well as a commentator. And we have uh, two of our top American women players who are going to be in the field. The field was just announced. Um, and Anna, that's Anna Satansky and Irina Crush. So they'll be actually among the lower rated players, which is something that's going to be new for people because usually we see them um, at the top expecting to rack up big scores. That said, heavy home court advantage for Anna and Irina who are going to be stacking up against players like Alexandra Kostanyuk and the uh, youngster Abdumarik uh, from Kazakhstan. So yeah, it's, it's going to be be a really great tournament, I think. Lots of bloody games and really good fights. And most of all, I'm excited that this is now going to be a fixture on the calendar. And even though they are, they may be the lowest rated. I I, I looked at the ratings and look like their the distribution is all very tight from top to bottom. Yeah, that's like kind of the way it's been with women's chess for a long time. That there's you know before Ho Yifan there was Judah Polgar, but then after that there's. There seems like there's a lot of competition, especially now that there's like 20 or 30 people within 50 rating points of each other. Uh, I, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's like somewhere in that neighborhood. There's a lot of people in that kind of 2,500 to 2,580 range. And yeah, so that, that that's good. I think it means that this can be a really competitive tournament. And that kind of segues into what's happening on the international calendar. The, the biggest event this month is Gibraltar. That's right. Gibraltar is a tournament. Like, honestly, I'm always so busy around this time of the year, but like Gibraltar, I have to say, is like the one tournament I always wished I could go to because I think they do such a fantastic job of, first of all, promoting women's chess with their great women's prizes. And even though they do such a good job of promoting women's chess, the women actually play with the men as well, which allows them to get, uh, you know, even even the top uh, top prize overall prizes, not just the women's prizes. So that's really awesome. Uh, and then it also just looks like a beautiful place and a wonderful time. And you can kind of see the proof is in the pudding because a lot of top players who wouldn't always play in open events come out to Gibraltar. Like this year we have, of course, Nakamura, who is like the king of Gibraltar, having won it so many times. But we also have Levon, Aronian, and MVL, types of names that you only see in open tournaments really in Gibraltar and the Isle of Man. That's it. And Wesley So is also playing. So listeners, take take a look for our traditional Barbary macaque photos that we always post whenever we have the Gibraltar event. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it is a lot of fun event. Uh, the, the players seem to really enjoy it, and it's fun for us to cover it. So Jen, thank you uh, again. Congratulations on the new podcast. C- can you tell the listeners who will be uh, your February guest on the third Tuesday this month? Well, it, I'll, I can tell you that we're going to be doing it live from the Karen's Cup. So that'll be awesome because I, probably on the rest day, but we're one of the mornings of the rounds. I'll be grabbing one of the players and we'll be doing it live from St. Louis. So we're quite, ex, quite excited about that. And uh, just to wrap up the Gibraltar note, we're going to have a report from the, the great annotator, in my opinion, Costa Kavutsky, uh, who will be talking about Americans on the Rock. So lots of fun coming up for every everyone in the CLO uh, community in February. Well, fantastic. As, as always, we, we just have so much content out there for our, our listeners and our readers. So uh, great job and thank you for joining us.
joining us. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this February edition of Cover Stories with Just Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Al Lawrence, who wrote our cover story about Dwayne Barber, the Dean of Scholastic Chess. Make sure to listen to our other U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, and Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi. Thank you, and good chess.